have this? Who do you think you are? When we're thinking about positive reinforcement-based training, we often envision food as the reinforcer we're using. Or perhaps we might use toys or other reinforcers, such as giving attention to a dog when they keep all four paws on the floor instead of jumping up. But what about play? Just straight up play with your dogs without toys. In this episode of The Bitey End of the Dog, I have a fun conversation with Dr. Amy Cook on using the play way with dogs and chat about why we can go far beyond just reinforcement when using play. And if you are working with aggression cases or plan on taking aggression cases as a trainer, or maybe you're even struggling with your own dog, we have a variety of educational opportunities just for you, including the upcoming Aggression and Dogs Conference happening from September 30th through October 2nd, 2022 in Providence, Rhode Island, with both in-person and online options. You can also learn more about the Aggression and Dogs Master Course, which is the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world for learning on how to work with and help dogs with aggression issues by going to aggressivedog.com. And if you are interested in hearing more about applicable, tangible, and immediate steps you can use with your own dog, or in your cases, check out the subscription series I just launched, which is an additional format to this podcast, where I'll walk you through a variety of aggression issues and how to solve them. You'll find a little subscribe button on Apple Podcasts where the Bitey End of the Dog show is listed. Your support of the show is very much appreciated. Hey guys, I got a real special guest this week. Dr. Amy Cook and I are going to be chatting about play with dogs. So let me tell you a little about Amy. I've known Amy for a while. We've definitely chatted a lot. She's done a lot of great work for me and for my platform. Uh, she's an IWBC certified dog behavior consultant, a longstanding professional member of the APDT, and was one of the first trainers nationally to become a certified professional dog trainer through independent evaluation. Dr. Cook received her PhD in psychology from UC Berkeley with her research focusing on the dog-human relationship and its effect on the problem-solving strategies dogs employ. Dr. Cook is the founder and creator of The Play Way, which we're going to be talking about, a new way to address behavior problems in dogs and as a popular instructor for the online school, the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy, FDSA. She has been training dogs for nearly 30 years and has specialized in the rehabilitation of stressed and fearful dogs for over 20 years. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I It's such a, a weird thing to hear your own bio, right? Because I'm like, wow, I've done all of that stuff. That's amazing. Um, thank you so much for having me here. And it's an amazing journey you've had, amazing career, and uh, this talk about play is is something that actually doesn't get talked about enough. And I'd love to dive into that because, you know, one thing I was thinking about as we were chatting right before we hit that record button was how much, again, and I, I mentioned this in a lot of the episodes about how much we've started to focus on, you know, applied behavior analysis mm -hmm. and really breaking things down and systems approaches, which are very important for the work we do. But sometimes we forget that conversation about relationships and sort of this more organic approach and looking at things uh, from that relationship aspect. So the play way for me, when I think about that, has more of that and also can be explained through a systematic approach when you get into it and start explaining to somebody like me <laughs> right. why there's a systems approach to it as well. Right. So it kind of takes into account both worlds. So so for those that are not familiar with Playway or the Playway, can you explain, kind of give us your your elevator pitch for that? My elevator pitch. I'm I'm so famous for being brief and concise. Um no, that's a <laughs> that's a joke. You'll see. I 
The playway, in short version, is the use of social play, social interaction. And that means not interacting over toys or with food and training, just your social selves playing with each other and using that to reduce stress in dogs and to um, apply directly to behavior problems, you know, like fear and anxiety and even aggression. Um, that's the short version. But I imagine from there, people are like, okay, just tell me more because that's not really enough. There's so much more to it. It is. And because the first things that comes to, at least that came to my mind when I first heard about it, I'm thinking, okay, there's some tug or there's some fetch right. or something or flirt pole. Right. So can we say it never involves toys or it rarely involves toys? Uh, so there are, mm, I sort of think of them as guidelines. That makes it sound so formal, but uh, we can have toys there if the interaction is not like your typical toy play. So um, is much more social, is conversational, is back and forth, and is not intended to rile up the dog or get a lot of excitement out of the dog. So when I'm, I suggest people put toys in their, in their social play, their therapeutic play uh, in my system, it's usually for giving the dog's mouth something to do, um, <laughs> to reassure the dog that there's a place they can put their mouth that is, you know, because some of them are worried, they're not sure if they should put it on your body, you know, mouth at your hands and all that from their previous learning. So that can help them uh, have something they can do that's familiar and also help you be able to play with your dog who's maybe pretty mouthy. And then for other dogs who might be really unsure, really shy with this, very uncertain, they don't know what you're doing and just aren't sure what to do, having a toy present to bridge them, to, to start the games can be really reassuring to them. And that's um, a kindness that I, I want to show a play partner. So toys can be there, but they're not the star of the show. They're not the, the main thing that's happening. They're, you know, a, an extra, if you will, in the movie. Got it. And so when we're talking about the what's happening as far as a behavior change, or maybe not from a behavior change standpoint, because that's another, I think, misconception maybe, that we're using it as a reinforcer, right. or we're doing counter conditioning using nope. play. Can you explain what's <laughs> happening there from, from the standpoint of why we're using it for reactive dogs or fearful dogs? Yes, absolutely. So there are a number of ways I think of it, but I very specifically want people who are used to people who are trainers or people who are used to training their dogs. So, you know, you're the owner, but you're, of course, you've been getting training lessons. I want you to think of this. It doesn't go in the place where food or toys would go when you're training. We don't play in that space in time. So it's not done right after a behavior you like, and it's not done right as a trigger shows up so that you can counter condition. It's not there. So then, okay, where is it? What are we doing? Right. Um, one thing it does, especially once it's developed, once the play partnership is working well and we've gone through the you know procedures of checking that you know that it that it's robust and can work outside and all of that, what it does is confirm for you as the trainer that your dog is in a good place for what they are going to be learning. You've taken them somewhere, there might be triggers there, and you want them to learn new things about those triggers. We all, we all do. A fearful or an aggressive dog, they have a misconception of what's going on out there, a misperception of what's threatening and what isn't, and we want them to learn otherwise. But often we don't have a measure 
for them being in a really optimal learning state, which as trainers, we like to call under threshold, right? But under threshold is kind of thrown around as a term. And, and there's not a lot of agreement about what counts as under threshold. When, you know, when you and I were new trainers, it was any dog who could eat was under threshold. Um, and we've gone further since then. And what, what I find this particular form of social play, because it's so fragile and so social that a, a dog won't engage in that if they're not feeling really quite relaxed and quite safe and pretty unstressed, at least as far as I can tell. And so being able to do that lets me as the trainer, the owner, know that we're in a good place for continued learning in that environment and kind of keeping me honest so that I don't tell myself, oh, it's probably fine. I think, I think, it's, I think this is good. We can keep going. The play gives me something very tangible to, to identify, to say we're in the good place. A dog is nice and relaxed. And I think there's a, a lot to be said for taking feelings of safety and starting from there when you're trying to learn rather than starting from a place of maybe slight threat, maybe a little concern, maybe I'm not really sure, and then trying to gain safety from that place. If we start from, I'm feeling really, really great already, uh, I think so much then can open up. Plus, it helps people be really conservative. Conservative is hard for us. Like we, we want to push. Trainers want to push. And learning, you want to push for learning. And emotional work is delicate. And I think giving the people in that team a way to objectively, I don't know if that's the word, but a visibly, identifiably, you could name what's happening way to reassure yourself that that you're probably in a good spot, I think is a, I think is a real uh, help in, in training just in general. I mean, I would have wanted to know under threshold in, in any way when I was doing most of that work. I mean, I'm sure you can relate to that. I 100% agree. You know, when I'd like to take a deeper dive too into that yeah. term threshold, uh, yeah. because it is thrown, we throw it around all the time, all the time, right, in dog training. And it is one of those terms in the dog training community that can have lots of different definitions depending on who you're talking to, you know, and I actually, this reminds me of a great article Eileen Anderson mm. uh, wrote, well, few years back, I think, on the term threshold and the definition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because she's really good about unpacking and making sure we're looking at the actual science. Right. Besides, she's such a clear writer. Terms. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she's great. And there, so for the listeners, go Google at Eileen Anderson threshold, and you'll probably find that article because she explains, you know, there's different definitions. It could be the physiological responses. It can be an emotional threshold. It can be a behavioral threshold where we're, as trainers, oftentimes, that is our barometer for measuring is the dog over threshold or not? And we might make it very simple as like the dog's barking, lunging, growling. That's over but threshold. Yeah. That's, <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's a good way of observing it, but we don't necessarily know what's going on underneath the hood. So what's what kind of emotion is that dog experiencing? Right. Is it feeling safe as you were just talking about? Right. And so the play you're saying can be a great barometer for measuring if the dog is truly under what we would as trainers want as under threshold. Would you say so? I would say that I characterize threshold in, in a number of ways about what threshold do I most want? Because a threshold isn't a thing, <laughs> um, right? It's a it's li quite literally a doorway. It's literally the place where you're changing from one state to the next state. And sure, if we have barking and lunging, we are over a barking and lunging threshold. But just under it, we're under that threshold, but over all kinds of others if you define them as such, right? And so I find that what I most want is to get the lowest on the stress scale, and it's a metaphorical scale. It's just a, a thing I'm saying, right? And an amount from no stress to way too much. And by stress, I do mean distress, not, you know, not, the, not the good kind. I want to get as low on that scale as I possibly can 
with an as accurate piece of information as I can find. And at one point in my career, that was food. That was what I considered to be under threshold, and it was as low as I could imagine going, right? But you know, as we delve more into this, we can say things like, well, how does he eat food, right? And going more into that, I can say, how clear is your head? Well, I don't know what that is inside your head. But if I said cues that sound similar, can you discern them? You normally can. Can you now? That tells me a little of the state of your head. Can you hear sit from stand? Right? In my house, you can, but you can't elsewhere. Okay, so I'm going to assume some other form of threshold is being crossed or something along the stress or something scale. Speaking you know, somewhat speculatively about what's going on inside is fair if you are also tying it to something you can, can see and map to, right? So how he eats and then can they hear cues? And so for me, play is so fragile the way we do it. It is not super, super high value. It's a silly little interaction. It's like chit-chat over coffee with your friend. And if something important comes in when you're doing that, you stop the chit-chat, right? Play in it's social play, therapeutic play for dogs is fragile enough that it goes away when they cross whatever the name of that threshold might be, but they've certainly left the place they were at when they were feeling really comfy with you. And they've, they've now moved to something else. And I want to see that movement so I can start making good decisions, whether it's to end this entire session or let him look a while and then return to play or, you know, there's a number of decisions I might make. But I feel because it's such a fine grain that it gets me finer information, lower on the scale, closer to them feeling okay. And I don't have to know what they're feeling exactly because, of course, I can't. I don't have to know it. What I have to know is whether whatever's going on inside them is starting to impede what I want them to be learning and how I want them to be feeling. And and if I can watch them leaving that state through judging the quality of my interaction with them, and using an interaction that for sure would go away. If I use one that would never go away, like tug, some dogs will tug amid anything, amid anything, right? And I can't use that then to judge the subtleties because they're going to blow right through all the subtleties. Just like with a Labrador with food, they're going to eat the whole time. I can't use food to measure them. But I can use social play because they won't do it the second things start creeping in. And right there, I get good information as a trainer. And even even owners with you know, very little training in any of this stuff, they can identify play is happening or it's not happening. You know, it's it's binary a little bit. So uh, that's how I use it to keep me on track with threshold. And I don't feel like it's requiring me to be too speculative about what actually is in their head. Even if we use those words, sometimes I'm not having to do that. Because, because of course, we know we can't know. And because I'm looking directly at do I have play or don't I? It's, it's identifiable. And, and it's very easy to see. Yeah. That's a strong word, easy, but it is something that it's sort of like what I love about start button behaviors or chin rest, yeah. because rather than having to recognize the whale eye or the tongue flicks or those subtle things we try to teach our totally. clients, it's a very, you know, it's an obvious behavior. The dog pulls their chin off the chin rest. They're not ready to continue with the procedure. And I can see how play is somewhat like that. And it's, it's a very obvious thing. Like if you're not looking for those subtle signals, it's like the dog's going to play socially with you or not. And mm -hmm. you also mentioned some really important points. You know, you mentioned food. Some dogs are going to take food, even All though the they're way. over threshold. Some dogs will sit when you ask them to, when they're over threshold. Mm -hmm. Especially so a well-trained dog, you know, a dog you've been doing that a long yeah. time with, they can do yeah. those things under a lot of pressure. 
Absolutely. And, and so it's not giving a true indication of what's happening, again, from an emotional state, at least, again, as much as we'd like to. Right. And not to say that we don't use food or other toys I, or things I like that. I use them all the time. Course, please, yeah. <laughs> please, yeah. internet, please know. Food always on me, toys everywhere. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's important. That's why we have a very uh, diverse podcast. Yes, here. yes, <laughs> no. Toys everywhere. I'm a big fan. Approaches. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So we are on a podcast. So tell me, what does social play look like if you had to describe it? And and I will give a side note to the listeners. If you ever want to see somebody do a good imitation <laughs> of a dog, it's Amy. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anybody imitate a dog quite as well as you. So so yeah, what does it look like if you were to describe it without actually showing it? I, I know you can't see it, but the, the imitative properties, I think, help. Um, although I, you know, certainly it's not required that you imitate a dog, but, um, you know, if you're trying to communicate cross species, especially socially, the more things you can do that are dog-like, the more likely you're going to hit the wider amount of, of, of dogs who can interpret you. So I guess I've cultivated it a little bit, but social play is both easy conceptually to understand and yet also can be quite challenging to fully engage in for the fact that you already know how to play. You are a species that plays. You are a member of a species that plays. So are dogs. You are a social animal. So are dogs. You were a child once. Even if you don't play with them now or don't play in your adult life, you did play. You were a child. Um, play is a natural language in our species or a natural endeavor. It's not truly a language, right? And it is for dogs as well. It can, of course, get covered by adulthood are covered by other hobbies, like dogs just learn toys are the best for their mouths. And that's how they get get kind of canalized into that sort of interaction. But play isn't truly taught exactly. I think anyway, is how I think of it now. I don't really teach you to play and I don't really teach dogs to play. What we are mostly doing is uncovering the things that block it and learning to curate a style of play that will work therapeutically. So at its core, social play with dogs is you, generally speaking, don't have toys in your hand unless they're needed for mouthy dogs. And it's you and your partner, your dog, interacting purely socially in a conversation. So by that, I mean, I take a turn by floating an idea, if you will, like I have bitey hands, I'm gonna get you. Just like we do with a child, you know, maybe a child we're getting to know, someone in our family, we're like, hi, Poopa, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. We do it with babies. Yeah. And then we should wait to see what our dog says about that. And that's a part where a human can easily forget. We tend to barrel forward and say, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Here I come. I'm going to get you. And then they're gotten. Yeah. Social play has to have, it has to be a conversation. I want people to say, here's an idea I have. What say you, dog? And let the dog have a response. Now, a novice dog, often they don't know they can have a response. They don't know what you're actually doing. This is why we develop this skill. This is why I coach people. This is why this takes more than just drop in and you'll get it done. But essentially, you already know how to have a conversation. You know when it's roughly your turn to speak, even though some of us are, you know, maybe, you know, we have different rhythms than others, but we, we know how to do it. And we just don't realize we can do this with dogs. So I, I slow people down. I help them be patient. It also 
requires a form of silliness. I need people to remember that they're teasing, not provoking. You're not making play happen. You're not prodding them into playing. You're not goading play. You're not causing play. You're being worthy of play. You're being a sensitive partner that would listen to any feedback they gave you about what they don't like and what they'd prefer. You'd be like, sure, that's fine also. You're an improv partner that says yes and, not no but. So even if they mouthed you a little too hard, you'll be like, hey, awesome, let's morph that into the next thing without saying, ow, I don't like that. A, A cooperative play partner says, you know, this is expectation-free space for us. I don't have any designs on how you like this or what you want to do or what I want to do. I want to relate to you. I want to have a back and forth that is from both of us. So not just from me to you, which is what trainers do. We are monologists and we run the show and we tell dogs what we want. Play, social play in this way is expectation-free and is equalized. I want you down on the floor with your dog so that your power isn't up and higher. I want them to learn they have a voice in this and to insert their ideas for play. And I want them to know that you will pause. You will ask a question like, I'm going to get you. Can I get you? You're going to ask the question, but you're going to wait for an answer. You're going to see a dog who turns their head to the side and says, "Mm, I don't want to be gotten. And if you continue to say, I want to get you, I want to get you, and then get them, well, you didn't listen. That's not good play partnership. If you say, I'm going to get you, and they turn away, you drop your hand and say, okay, not that one. That's cool. All right. How about how about this other idea? And maybe your dog perks their ears up and goes, I like that one. That one's good. That's you being a good social play partner. And I got to tell you, it's not just the play that helps us see threshold or helps us see how a dog is feeling. It's also Because we can prod play sometimes and get it, right? It's this back and forth. It's if I say, hey, I'm going to get you, get you. And normally they're like all about it. They're like, I love that game. But today they kind of looked away and looked off somewhere. I'm like, oh, oh, the conversation between us is off. You're not... You're not here with me, talking with me in this conversation. Your mind is elsewhere, and I need to respect that. That means I have something else. You have something else you're dealing with. And if if I can't see that, if I just barrel through and make us play and make you pay attention to me a lot, I won't see that subtlety. And I, I'm telling you, the more I explore this, the more I want that so bad. I want that so much. I want them to tell me every time whether they can – truly pay attention to even the silliest of things. Because without that, I'm starting to feel like kind of a a rude partner. I'm starting to feel like as if I'm just talking over someone. I mean, in conversation, you're supposed to go back and forth. And social play allows a human to learn how to do that with a dog that they're not used to doing it with. We we never do that, right? I mean, we don't, historically, right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, everything you're saying there is speaking of so many different benefits to this, yeah. you know, so we, we talked about the barometer, it being a barometer for threshold to really know if a dog's feeling safe in their environment. And we're also talking about the relationship aspect. And for me, I can see that as being one of the most powerful aspects of this, because oftentimes there is a uh, fractured relationship, especially with dogs that are giving the owners a hard time, Absolutely. which I'm sure you can talk oh, about. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just that sometimes it's a lack of communication. So I have, I have multiple follow-up questions <laughs> to that. But <laughs> I'd love to hear, you know, talk you talk more about that relationship aspect and the relationship building that occurs when we do play with our dogs and why that's so important for the work we do. I find it 
really important. I can't say that I thought it would be or came into it feeling it was really important before any of this, or, or I thought I had placed adequate importance already on it going into this, going into learning um, and developing this system. But the more I do this, and the more I really delve into what what it's giving us, what I we get from it, the more sensitive I am to the relationship aspect that is happening that, that we don't often have a tuned perspective in. So we know our perspective. And it's often, of course, with anyone difficult to understand someone else's perspective, a human, it's harder for a dog, because they're not a human, right? And so I think we have to take very specific steps to really, really try to sympathetically understand, at least the possible mindset that they're in. For two reasons. One, because it leads us to better training, it helps us help them much better. But two, it's really difficult to to do behavior modification all the time with your dog. It's hard to own a dog who has been labeled aggressive, who's showing all kinds of, you know, your behaviors you can't uh, have happen. Having a shy, a fearful dog who can't meet any of your friends or can't have any guests over. These things, at first you're sympathetic toward because, oh my gosh, this is so hard on them. But as this goes on, and we all know that behavior modification can can take a while, we got to get a lot of skills up, we have to titrate, the relationship between the dog and the person can start to really have a strain. And I think we as trainers should be much more cognizant of honoring that, of how hard it can be, even if an owner understands that their dog is not giving them a hard time, but is having a hard time, you still can yeah, run out of the cup of your ability to do this because it's just hard and it's often not what you bargained for. I know people who will not say this out loud, but they got a dog and now they're wishing they hadn't, wishing they could get out of this relationship, right? But won't say that and then feel guilty for having thought it, much less ever, ever say it. And I'm very sympathetic to that. And if you stop for a minute and think about how we do this with people, you know, because we are often in very long-term relationships with people, people we don't opt out of, but still have maybe some strife with sometimes, right? Spouses, anyone? I mean, it's as simple as that, right? And in those relationships, we often have pre-built in, if you will, sympathy improvers. We have repair habits in those relationships. Our adult relationships have repair habits that we engage in when we're irritated with each other. We, let's say, go out on a date and remind ourselves of the romantic aspects. We have things like that that help us repair. And in dogs, I don't know that we've always explored all of the ways that we can remember why this dog is such a great dog. Remember why you love this dog in the first place. Maximize the parts of that dog and your relationship with them that you really, really like, that you really enjoy legitimately. And see your dog, it helps you see your dog through, I think, more sympathetic eyes. Because now, through the social play, you're laughing together. Through the social play, you've told a joke of some sort, and your dog is cracking up. And yes, dogs do laugh. We Dogs laugh. Uh, and they barrel into you or do something silly, and you're laughing yourself, and you're like, oh my God, that you are adorable. This is so cute. I've had more people spontaneously just, just come out with, oh my God, I love you so much, at their dog while this is happening. Not by plan, not because they're telling their dog that, but because they're feeling that. Um, these reparative times, I think, can help us keep going when things are hard. And I think it helps us as a team build a sensitivity 
that pays us back. So there's nothing like really knowing your intimate partner, right? It, the person you are spend the most time with, you can tell when they're starting to get stressed by just a, a just a small change of how they, you know, put their ha- you know, hand through their hair. You can tell the tiniest of things. When you play this way all the time with your regular play partner and you develop a sensitive language, you know their little boundaries, you understand they they kind of pulled back right then and you're like, "Right, I was doing I was too forward. You're really sensitive in conversation." They now have a very sensitive partner that they can say things to through their bodies. I don't believe that they're, you know, on purpose trying to directly tell you a true message, but they're still communicating with their actions and bodies and you will be better at reading it, making you feel more empowered, making you maybe feel more sympathetic and sensitive to what they're going through rather than what they already just did and that now you're embarrassed by or now you're not sure what to do with. And you get to go home and play and maybe shake off some of that stress that came up or whatever. Let's let's blow past that and have a good time together. Let's watch a good movie with a friend um, after you've had maybe a little tiff. And then you're like, oh, let's fix it and have, you know, have a good time and have a movie. We need those things, I think, as humans. And I think dogs need to see us. And I'm, you know, I'm speculating here, but I, I feel like dogs need to see us in more ways than just as their teacher and as their, you know, manager in the home of what they can and can't do and where they're going. Seeing us as equal, if you will, equalized play partners, and that they can have an effect on our bodies, they can push us around collaboratively through, you know, we train that this is okay, I think really helps them. uh, You know, I'm I'm in speculation land. But when I see the changes in them, I just I just know I love it when I see it. And what's actually going on in there? I mean, I'm going to wait for everyone to, you know, everyone gives me feedback about, you know, how it's different for their dog. But I feel like I know my partner so much better if I can play with them. I can see just by the change of an ear set, the tiniest change in something, I'll be like, I'm gonna get you. And they look at me and go, yeah, you're not. And I'm like, okay, why don't we get out of here? How come? How come? Uh, It's like having in jokes and then also shorthand. And that's what you want from your your closest buddy, your partner, you don't want to be the only one talking. So it's, it's enjoyable, but it's also therapeutic, kind of on both ends. And um, I, I can't wait to see what I think about this in 10 more years, because there's probably a whole bunch I haven't mined or, or that everyone else, as they pick it up, are going to be able to mine, I, I hope anyway. Everything you're saying is so incredibly insightful because it shows your nearly 30 years of experience of working <sighs> yeah. with clients in these type of cases in that oftentimes we're so focused on the bad, right? So we forget focused. about the good. We forget about the relationship aspect because it's it is difficult there's grief there's grief there's, there's, there's guilt, guilt there's blame there's stress what right? did there's i anxiety. do did i cause this did right. i have to get this dog don't say that out loud i just picked you yeah. randomly from the shelter i thought it was going to be romantic and fun and i had a dog and oh gosh now i'm a hobbyist now i know about dog training i didn't mean yeah. to and you're bringing that back with this you know with being able to play you're bringing a lot of that back or helping clients remember the reason they got a dog for in many ways. <laughs> and right? why did you so, get a dog anyway? But to, you know, but to have fun, to laugh, to, to goof around, yeah. to be silly. I mean, maybe your, your version of silly, sure. But you want the social connection or you've, you would have gotten a fish, right? You want a social interaction of some kind. And it reminds me of what, what you just said, reminded me that when positive training first, you know, came in, I was in the world of training before before the first turn of that page. And I remember being so excited about clicker training 
and especially about shaping because that was all we all I really knew of clicker training at that point was to shape with it and it felt so much like a conversation and it felt so much like I'm listening to your your voice I'm empowering you you can you can take an action dog and I will reward you for that and it felt uh, it just it felt different. I think that's why it excited so many of us, right? Getting away from how we were seeing it before as I'm in charge of everything and I run the whole show. But somewhere along the way, and I guess it's a long way now because that was in the 90s, but somewhere along the way, we, I, I feel like we've, I don't know if I want to say forgotten. That sounds That sounds just a little too provocative. I don't know that we're forgetting, but maybe we lost touch with that aspect of it. And training sometimes gets very mechanical. It gets very, I'm holding still and I'm waiting so that I don't make any extraneous movements. And I'm waiting for the dog to do a thing and then I will click it. And then I will give a cookie and you go right back to that dog. And it, it can be a little robotic. And I remember feeling robotic when first starting clicker training, but I'm not very robotic anyway. And so mine just became kind of <laughs> kind of like me uh, anyway. And I just you know helped my dogs work through that. Um, but when I watch other people who are very good at or very invested in doing clicker training, which I, of course, very much support, I see that sometimes the dog is adrift. Sometimes the dog is just there as a learner trying to figure out a puzzle and is kind of alone, if you will, because you're not talking to them because you're waiting to click. And uh, certainly it's very useful. It's important for explaining precise behaviors that they need to concentrate on and that you're trying to shave. Yes. But making sure we don't become that kind of specialist to the exclusion of the social interactive nature of what school and training and living with a dog is. It's not just social when you're living together and then mechanistic and, and hyper-precise when you're, when you're training. There's a wide spectrum. And training is really fun for dogs when we are also jollying and social and being silly and letting some play come in there. That's, now, that's not the therapeutic play. That's other forms of play. But it's still so enjoyable for them. And I wish for us to be good caretakers of their emotional experience, not just when they're stressed or having a behavior issue or not just at home, but in school too. When I'm here to teach you something, I want you to enjoy it because that goes a long way toward, you know, toward getting your buy-in for school. So on the relationship aspect of things, I think through clicker training, we sometimes can push it a little far and get, and get so worried about precision that we take our personality completely out of it. And I think we should explore ways that we can, you know, bridge that space, meld it a bit, not lose the precision, not lose what we're doing, but understand that our learner shouldn't just be sitting there adrift wondering where, if they're alone in the room with a machine who's clicking, right? I, we should be there with our partners too. Yeah, absolutes are almost never they're, a good right. thing when it comes to dog training, right? <laughs> right. So, to use an absolute. So, absolutes are never yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the logistics when we're doing these sessions. So we're going to take that moment and we'll be right back. Hey, friends, it's me again. And I hope you are enjoying this episode. You may have figured out that something I deeply care about is helping dogs with aggression issues live less stressful, less confined, 
more enriched and overall happy lives with their guardians. Aggression is so often misunderstood, and we can change that through continued education, like we receive from so many of the wonderful guests on this podcast. In addition to the podcast, I have two other opportunities for anyone looking to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, which include the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference. If you want to learn more about the most comprehensive course on aggression taught anywhere in the world, head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the Dog Pros tab and then the Master Course. The course gives you access to 23 modules on everything from assessment to safety to medical issues to the behavior change plans we often use in a number of different cases, including lessons taught by Dr. Chris Pockel, Kim Brophy, and Jessica Dolce. You also receive access to a private Facebook group with over a thousand of your fellow colleagues and dog pros all working with aggression cases. After you finish the course, you also gain access to private live group mentor sessions with me where we practice working through a variety of cases together. And if you need CEUs, we've got you covered. We are approved for just about every major training and behavior credential out there. This is truly the flagship course offered on aggression in dogs and is perfect for pet pros that want to set themselves apart and take their knowledge and expertise to the next level, or even for pet owners who are seeking information to help their own dog. And don't forget to join me for the third annual Aggression in Dogs conference, either in person or online from Providence, Rhode Island on September 30th through October 2nd, 2022. This year's lineup includes many of the amazing guests you might have heard on the podcast, including Suzanne Clothier, Jen Tryock, Simone Mueller, Dr. Amber Batson, Kim Brophy, Karish Mawar, Laura Monaco-Torelli, Dr. Simone Gabois, and many more. Head on over to AggressiveDog.com and click on the Conference tab to learn more about the exciting agenda on everything from advanced concepts and leash reactivity to using positive reinforcement to work with predatory behavior. And I wanted to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for the conference. As a family of world-class trainers, Fenzy Dog Sports Academy provides expert and accessible instruction for competitive dog sports using the most progressive training methods and positive reinforcement techniques. Through their online platform, students are able to access professional dog training no matter your location or pup's skill level. FDSA believes the bond between dog and human is a proud and life-changing partnership, and they'll work with you to develop a respectful and kind relationship with your furry best friend. Check out FDSA at FenzyDogSportsAcademy.com. All right, I'm back with the amazing Dr. Amy Cook. We are talking about the Playway. And I'd love to jump into sort of the logistics of what these sessions look like. Mm -hmm. So I'm picturing a lot of the listeners or I'm imagining a lot of listeners kind of thinking about, all right, so what does it look like in these sessions and some of the variables? So one of the first questions though I have is kind of thinking about, you know, kind of thinking about maybe my own dad and how he, if I was to ask him to do this with a dog, that it would let me tell you a little about my dad. Kind of a shy guy, mm. microbiologist, okay. was in the Navy, okay. grew up on a farm, all right? So not very playful okay. in that sense. And I could never see him actually engaging in this. So, or really being silly or getting down to the dog's level or anything mm-hmm. like that, or with my dad actually not not really interacting with dogs much at all. But, well, there you um, go. <laughs> Yeah. So what would you do for clients? Like you have something that's kind of focused more on like, I've this, we've got to be training because that's what I hired you for. This is the issue. I've got to be sit down, stay, come, you know, walk nicely on a leash. And that's what they're picturing. And that last thing they're thinking about is maybe getting 
down on the ground and you know doing bitey hands and <laughs> they pro- first so f- kind of a two part question is getting them to actually do it and then getting them to think about why mm. it's so important. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're working with clients, for those of you who are trying to think about how to introduce this, uh, certainly if you're a trainer, the first thing I recommend is that you get good at it yourself. I don't think people should try to pass these kinds of things on if they don't really feel it in their bodies and have several dogs uh, journeys under their belts. But once you're trying to think of it about passing it on, or if you're that person who's trying to pass it on to yourself right now through my words, first know that it's, it's a separate space. So it wouldn't be in place of all of that other training. It wouldn't be. And I would start any new person with the things they expect to see. I want that dog successful. I want the person to feel like they're empowered to, they can, they can get behavior, they, they can reinforce it. That's the beginning of a conversation in the first place. Can you, can you get a behavior with your dog? And can you tell them that that was the right behavior? That's a conversation. So I would help a person who's really new to this get successful in a lot of other ways. And then start making the case to them that as a side benefit, as a as a thing that helps their dog's emotional life, or um, if their dog isn't having a problem, then another way you can enjoy your dog, things like that. And if that sparks them, great. If they're just a person who's like, I kind of don't see it and I sort of never feel silly. I don't see any need to say, but it's important that you do it. It's not important that you do it. It it might be very therapeutic for a dog who's having a behavior issue, but it's not the only therapy. I want to find the one that, that you really click with. But for people who are motivated, like I want to, I just, I don't know how to, I don't know how to play. I just, I feel awkward. I feel weird. I feel dumb. Um, there are definitely ways for that. People People only come in a few varieties, if you will, a few broad strokes when they're trying to do this. They're either way too much or they're kind of way too little and awkward and don't feel like they know how to do it. Um, and kind of dogs, too. I mean, you know, if we if there's never just two of any kind, but yeah, kind of here. Those are the big buckets. And there's a way through a way through that for everybody. Play will have its own certain style. There are no two teams that ever look the same to me. I don't play the same with any two dogs. So what happens is I help them feel motivated to and then find their language together by first just focusing on, like, you don't have to be a dog. You don't have to do bitey hands. You don't have to get into a play bow with your 60-year-old back. And I know I'm going to age out of play bows at some point in the time of y'all knowing me because, you know, my days on the floor will be maybe numbered. I don't know. <laughs> um, there are so many ways to do this. And so sometimes I have people start with a with a nice good morning hello, jump on the bed and have a wriggly little happy good morning that is a moment of affection that isn't just unidirectional. So I might say, Let's have an affectionate moment or, you know, just a fun social moment, how you have them with your dog. And let's put our minds to whether it's unidirectional. Is your dog receiving all of that only and you're the only one putting out affection? Or is your dog also expressive? And then if the dog is expressive and kind of wiggling back in all of this, I start maybe highlighting that there's a way to take turns in that rather than do it at the same time. You can find you know, if you have an A and you're trying to get to a, well, it's really a Z, not a B, right? You're, you're trying to get to, you know, M or something. There are steps in between. And like all good trainers, we, we break it down and we find the piece that the human says, I can do that. That makes sense to me. I can do that. And you find the piece that doesn't weird out the dog. So that the dog says, I know, okay, I know what this is. Uh, okay, I know what this is. And if it starts from affection, it starts from affection. If it starts from food training, I can make food training 
into a little food game. I can wiggle the food. I can hide it. In, I can hide it in my pocket. I can I can thwart the dog by pushing them away. You can't have this. Who do you think you are? But I'm teasing. You got to keep that teasing tone. And, you know, we probably all can tease a little bit. We got to our adulthood. We know how a little bit of flirting works or just a little bit of silly with kids. And if you can get a little piece of that, people don't think they can do that with their dogs. So they don't load that program, if you will. They don't, you know, start that algorithm going. But if you tell them you can flirt, you can tease, you can pretend it's like a little baby, it starts to unlock little things. And, and then, then, the, then the ball starts rolling. And then we can get into the details of maybe how you would conduct play. Yeah. Yeah. You make some really good points because when I think of what it looks like, I've seen you do it. Right. And it's kind of like, it's sort of like watching, you know, a world-class opera singer, right? And it's kind of like, in a way, you might, somebody might think, oh, I'll never be a singer. I would never actually right. utter something that sounds like a note. Right. And I can't, then you get I can't get on the floor, like, <laughs> so I can't play. Um you know, or, right. uh, you know, I, I'm just not yeah. that extroverted. Gosh, she's so, she's just yeah. so, you know, energy. I'm very yeah. so loud and big and not everyone is. Yeah. Right? You made some good points about, you know, again, we, as trainers, we do it all the time with our learners and breaking things down into simple steps. You also brought another very important point about what if, what do you do to accommodate someone that can't get on the floor, maybe has a disability where they're not able to do the same things you're doing? Is there other techniques or uh, ways to adapt to that? Absolutely. And it's it's super, it's really common. Um, and it, it will be me. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic. You know, we, <laughs> the, the trick is, see, dogs can adapt to most of anything we're going to throw at them. If we are sensitive to how much we're loading, how much of a big jump we're asking for. And if we can you know, stay consistent and let them kind of start to interpret and build it a bit. So we start with what you can do. And then we help your dog see that as play. Most people, I think, can be in some form of a bed, I'm going to say. Let's let's call that maybe the some kind of common denominator. You can lay on a soft surface, hopefully, with your body. And if you can allow your dog to come up there with you, now you're on equal footing again. Now you're both laying down. You're at the same height. And sure, you can't roll around and, you know, throw a big party, but you can mock push away. I don't want you here. You get out of here. But you don't mean it. You're not shoving. You just get out of here. And the dog goes, oh, you're being silly. And they come in and maybe lick your face and you giggle and hide under a blanket. That's a play interaction. It's a play interaction. I, people have asked me sometimes in seminars if they can play from a chair. And I find that particular one to be a little difficult to get play out of because of the kind of your, your whole lower half of your body is a bit stuck and you can't move as much because you're in the chair and then the dog is lower than you. But what I do for that is I say, okay, in your house, you can be on your chair or your ottoman, but your dog is on the couch. So your dog is up higher and can access more of the top of your body. And then you can tilt your head and play peekaboo and again shove them or make little bitey motions at their face or boop their nose and get something going there. But if I haven't covered your situation, if I haven't described what you're challenged with, think of this mostly as a silly conversation. It doesn't have to have the bitey hands I talk about at all. In fact, many dogs don't want that form anyway. They don't want to have the bitey face. It's a conversation with a little tease in it, maybe a little suspense, just a little back and forth, a question, an answer, uh, a twinkle in your eye. And right there, you're developing a secret way of talking to each other that gives you the sensitivity to go forward. It can look like anything if you are both in it and both kind of teasing, feeling a little silly, a little smiley. That's usually, usually enough for me to even conduct all of therapy. Believe it or not, you really can. So it's open to everybody. Yeah. 
Yeah. So let's walk through a setup and what it would look like okay. now. And so you get approached by a client and let's say you've, you've kind of already taught them the play that we've been talking about. Okay. So, so the social play aspect, they get it. You go out, the dog has issues with other dogs sure. in an environment. Strangers, so yeah. you go outside and yeah. So what does it look like? What does the setup look like? What variables do you consider before you start just running outside with the dog? Yeah. Uh, so here's what happens. You get really good at play inside and you go according to all the parameters I might set on you. And then you go outside and play is gone. <laughs> and play is gone. You go outside and you get nothing because that's a really big jump. Getting outside is not the same process that you might be thinking of as a trainer where we're kind of like halfway outside and then a little more outside. It's not actually. Here's what I actually do to transition dogs. We teach them how to handle a distraction, and then see if they choose to play again on their own without us prodding, making them play, inspiring play hard. We see if they remember they were just in the middle of play and want to resume it. So to do that, we do it in the house. If, let's say play was perfect in all the rooms of the house. It's exactly what I want, whatever. Then I bring in a very mild, no big deal distraction. Like we're playing near the window. We're playing with the window cracked open, but you're not even near it. It's in the living room and you're across the living room. We play with something that just could take their attention a little bit. And we let them follow their attention. We let them go look. Go ahead. Go right ahead. I'll be here when you're ready. At first, dogs don't know that. And then over time, this is called the look and dismiss uh, part of, of the playway. After you get the play, you progress to look and dismiss. And so they look at things that you know are benign because you just, you set them there. It's just your yard or, you know, and then they process that in whatever manner is their own and they put it away and they remember about play and they choose to play with you again. That process can be taught inside the house and in your yard and in your front lawn. But that process is what they're going to be doing with the triggers as well. So I want them to, and for you to learn the process on things that are not triggers so that everybody is a very well-oiled machine about how all these things go. You can go to your yard, a butterfly flies by, your dog looks at, interrupts their play and looks at it. And you are grateful because you want your dog to interrupt themselves from play if they have a passing thought, you want them to do it, please do not call your dog's name in that time. They follow their thoughts for a minute and they're like, that was neat. And then they look at you and go, oh, hi, play again. And they choose play again. That process is theirs to have. Once they have that process on average things, let's say they're afraid of people, but not dogs. You can practice it on dogs because they're not afraid of dogs. They're just merely distracted by them. And you of course have them far away. Once that procedure is kind of old hat, by the time you're asking them to follow their thoughts toward a trigger that's also far away and in a safe distance, they have a procedure that they own, that they are doing. They look at the stranger out there, they kind of take, you know, add to their database of strangerness and say, okay, that one has a hat. Okay. Well, anyway, what were we doing, dad? What were we, what were we doing? We were playing, right? That process by itself is theirs. You are curating it to make sure it can happen. But it's not about, we played inside, now I'm going to go outside and try to play around your triggers. I need them to already have a process inside themselves for handling their own mind wandering to something that interests them or slightly concerns them. Like, what was that? They hear a dog bark in the distance and they go, what was that? And then they wait 
and then they file it away or do something or decide it's no big deal. I don't know what they're doing, right? And they go, ah, anyway, and they return to you. That very process is exactly how we do triggers. And by the time we got triggers in the mix, this whole thing is very anticlimactic. Nothing is happening. You're just out, you're playing, your dog looks around, it looks at people, it plays with you. It feels like you're doing nothing. And I think that's really helpful for people because they don't know the timing. They're not sure. What we're doing is saying, dog, I know you can do this. I'm just going to make sure that I have given you the practice at the skills of doing this and that I've given you only difficulty levels that are at first not emotional. They're just interesting. <laughs> and then eventually they might be slightly emotional. But by then you'll be an old hat at organizing your thoughts about this and feeling safe again. That's the progression. So it's not quite trainery. It's a little different. So when, when outside, to clarify, do you end up decreasing distance towards the, as long as the dog's feeling, and in your, again, everything we're seeing, right. the dog's feeling safe and doing, exhibiting all the things you were just talking about. Is there a goal point to decrease distance or is the goal to combine it with some other techniques like counter conditioning to decrease distance, to get the dog, you know, quote unquote, okay with mm -hmm. their triggers? What I do, and it's a, I'm glad you asked that question because it, it literally is the one variable that everybody wants uh, first, right? And it's very reasonable. You have to be able to walk closer to people in life. And it's the last variable that I want to work on, the last one, because it's so much harder to process something when it's closer up to you. That's just a lot more pressure. But there's so much I can do with something far away. So let's say on the same sidewalk as me, way too close. Let's just say that across the sidewalk on the other side of the street, is safe distance. I realize that's unrealistic for a lot of dogs, but it's an ease of conversation now. So they're across the street and your dog has no questions, does not care. What I would start doing is changing the nature of what's happening across the street, because that's a distance I know they're good at. I say, what if the man now has a motorcycle helmet? What if he's, I don't know, waving a bag or something, doing something else? Now your dog is going to have questions again because the picture has changed, but it's not closer. So they'll look again, they'll look a little longer, they'll figure it out, they'll put it aside. I'll change it again. Is it, what if I have two people there? What if those people are playing um, a little game together? So they're a little active. What if, and I'll start changing all the variables as best I can at distances I can, I can use so that a dog is just getting so many pictures of so many kinds of people, so many activities people do, the way they look, the clothes they come in, building all this database. By that time, a couple feet closer, 10 feet closer, isn't going to be very different because they've amassed so much knowledge about the trigger at a safer distance. I want to do distance last because it it's the hardest one and I want a dog very experienced. And you know, by that time, they've seen so much, they've built such a database of the strangeness of whatever the trigger was that... By the time they're, it's, you don't work it anymore. You just kind of walk by, they go, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't care anymore. It is not like counter conditioning where, or at least in my experience, I find I have to do a lot of variables when I'm doing counter conditioning, because if you change the picture, you're, you're, you have to really help them see that the picture, now it's changed. Now you're counter conditioning again, somehow in play. And when I let them do it, so meaning it's their process. I'm, I'm curating that it's going well. I'm curating that it's not, that they're not overmatched but it's their process to watch and learn. I find that they cluster things up. I find that they go, mm, yeah, I've seen that picture. I, I, the change of hat is not relevant. Uh, I've just seen that picture. I mean, I don't know that that's what they're doing, but they, they move more rapidly toward comfort. And 
aren't as sparky toward slight changes. And they soon just kind of go, yeah, I'm kind of fine with all of this. Actually, any distance, it's fine. And you wonder where it went. That is really common. (laughs) I certainly can't guarantee it. But it's not a matter of shaving it all apart. So it, 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 and then of course, you can fold other therapies in as needed for different goals. Yeah. So if we were going to geek out a little bit and kind of dive deeper into what's actually happening, if we're seeing behavior change, would you say it's something like desensitization or habituation or what's, what's the, what's happening here? Why is it actually changing the dog's behavior over time? Right. The, the million dollar question, right? Um, the, the short answer, uh, which I'm, I'm almost never asked uh, to give is I don't know. <laughs> the, the longer answer is speculative on my part. So I just want to say that going right into this. Since I have removed the framework of rewarding specific behaviors and trainer-led counter-conditioning as far as you make a good thing happen or appear or whatever right after the trigger, since I've taken those out, it's, of course, tempting to say that those aren't what's causing behavior change. But I can't say that that's not what's causing behavior change because those forces are always happening. They're always happening. But I can't lean on it because I'm not manipulating those pieces, the A, B, and the C, and identifying them and saying that's what it did. That doesn't mean it's not happening. But how I'm thinking of it now, and I, I'm very open to everyone's you know, speculation about this kind of thing. How does it happen with puppies? How does socialization, the socialization period, how does that happen with puppies? We take them places. I just like to shortcut it and say build their database of the varieties of human behavior and city life and whatever else. And, you know, sure, we we are giving them food at times and often sometimes we're not regular pet owners or not. They're just taking their dogs places. And there's a process inside that brain that is growing their comfort in places that are new and that are becoming, you know, inured to the varieties that people come in and that dogs come in and and whatever that process is where it's in it's internal to the learner the learner has i don't know habituated probably and i like to think of this as somewhat as assisted habituation but i don't know that that's accurate exactly it's what i'm doing in my head when i'm thinking about it i'm assisting in that i'm laying the scene correctly and I think what you're doing is habituating, but it might not be the process of actual habituation that, that's behind the, behind in the brain there. So whatever is happening with puppies or us when we get used to things and stop mounting a stress response, or maybe we are learning something more accurate about something we were mistaken about. So if you're a dog and you're afraid of men, human men, you're mistaken. Your fear is real and your fear is correct and right. You should have it. I'm going to help you change your mind, but it's right for you right now. But you're not accurate because all human men are not threats to dogs, right? But a dog thinks so. That given dog might think so. And the dog is wrong. So getting that dog some updated information, not me telling them that I think they should think this, but by letting them feel those feelings of safety around those things which are far from them and letting them look as long as they want to, letting them build that database, letting them ponder whatever it is they ponder, letting them take in whatever it is they take in and look, look, look at men from safe distances and not have me tell them that's followed by this. 
but let them use whatever it is that we all do when we are getting used to something or getting less afraid of something. If I can set it up so that they can do it and not have me do it, then whatever that process is, is, is their own. And I'm, that's what we're doing with puppies so much of the time. I started to ask myself, can we really not do that with adult dogs? I mean, I, I understand it's sometimes impractical because you do need some distance. But does it mean I can't can't? Or do I just have to set it up a little more in their favor because they're not quite as plastic and open? They have some opinions now. I don't like that guy. So now I've got to kind of give them maybe a different scenario to come to a new conclusion. So sure, habituation and also something internal to them where they are verifying that they are actually safe. There are no threatening acts being being levied by the men of the world walking by. That is not a threat. The dog is wrong. And to to update your ideas when you are wrong and you need recalibration, you need exposure, you need to see things, you need to take them in. But the fundamental problem is that taking them in with a reactive or aggressive dog, they can't. They can't take that new information in because they're already triggered. They're already stressed or emotional or holding on to their coping mechanisms, you know, trying their best to do what you've asked. But they're not in a learning place that's going to say, oh, I really am safe. What they're saying is, I might still be in danger. Let me handle this or cope with this or come with dad. I don't think new learning is as easy from that place. If you can even think of your own times of trying to learn safety, maybe you're from the middle of somewhere far away and you've moved to New York City. You've got to learn subways and you've got to figure out who is kind of dangerous and kind of who isn't. And it takes exposure. Now, exposing a dog to things is fraught. So this is why I like play. It keeps me honest. It keeps me making sure we're under threshold. The dog is feeling safe so they can take in new information. And I think then when they get that new piece that says, oh, it's actually not like they can look as long as they want instead of just in two second bursts and be interrupted because it's too, it's too over threshold. I think they do the learning themselves. But how is it happening? I think it's oxytocin is part of it. But outside of that, I'm speculating. I'm fully speculating. I love that response because it, it shows your PhD side as well. It's not making a definitive statement about it. I can't it. make it's, a definitive statement. <laughs> until it's peer-reviewed, double-blind. But no, it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating conversation we're having. And it, you mentioned just how important the feeling of safety is to mm. the animals. But what about to shift gears to the safety for, mm -hmm. in general, for the public, the handler, the dog, and when you're yes. doing these setups. So I'm, I'm sure some of the listeners are probably thinking, oh, this all sounds great, but my dog, you know, will, has, you know, killed other dogs, you know, mm -hmm. seven, you know, 300 yards away, charged, mm -hmm. you know, so thinking of these extreme cases. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure in their mind, like, okay, I maybe can get to this point of using play, social play in those environments, but how do I keep everybody safe? Right. And certainly that's a, a prime concern, both for people who have dogs who, who have maybe shown that they might not be sometimes, but also for us as trainers, I have to always be thinking ahead of uh, any dog could do something dangerous, right? So first and foremost, I would not be even considering starting social play uh, with your dog, if your dog has a history of or some worry about you, aggression toward you, um, suspicion about you, anything un that they're not comfortable with about you, because you starting to play socially can be quite threatening and very unusual. And that's not the therapy for you and your dog in that moment. But outside of that, of course, most of the time what we have is, is listening because you have a, an aggression problem or something toward a trigger outside. I would say that 
when you're entering in the whole therapeutic arrangement of life now with your dog, first and foremost, you have management. And I teach an active management system, which is a little different from what most people do, but it's you know a twist on the same general idea that you need to make sure that all safety protocols are in place. And that's always going to be true. It doesn't get, you know, accepted because we're doing some social play. And you will honor your distances and you will make sure to be conservative because there's nothing wrong with being too far and playing. There's nothing wrong with that. Now you just had a good play session. Maybe you didn't get any trigger work, but you have to play anyway. So there's that. Sometimes I have people go out in pairs so that one person can tune out the world and really tune into their dog and the other person can be watching for changing conditions to make sure Mm -hmm. so that you don't feel split focus. Because I'm telling you, if you're a split focus play partner, you're not engaged in play. The play takes a bit of focus and concentration on each other. That's why it works is because you're just lost in the world with each other. And, you know, if you're half there, your dog's like, yeah, you're half there. So I'm half there. They, They can feel that. The thing is, though. It is, especially for really complicated cases, it's not the only thing that, that I would throw at, at a case to get all of the behavior change I might want. Certainly, I'm going to be teaching alternate behaviors. Those are coping skills for me because I consider them over threshold. But they're still wonderful things. I need you to get from A to B. Can you cope with this happily, pleasantly, willingly, come with me, here's cookies? Those are all happening too. And play is a separate track you'd be on. And what your aim or or how I think you can think of it is I'm going to start seeing if I can't take the general cup of stress, the cup that we fill and that maybe is filled all the time or a lot of the time with your dog, because not only are they barking outside when you're walking around, but maybe they're also looking out the window at times in the house or maybe they're sound sensitive. So they're barking in the house sometimes and maybe they're stress cup. Maybe they're really into you, but they're not sure about your housemate or your son. And That stress cup can be just all the time full or just way too high. And what play, even in your own house, even never taking it out anywhere else therapeutically, even in your own house, I think what I see is a reduction of the general baseline, a reduction of how much stress I feel throughout the day. I can let more things go throughout the day. Laughter and silliness in your body. I mean, just think about after you've come back from vacation, how traffic feels to you. You're like, well, I mean, whatever. Like, I'm sure they have somewhere to go. You're just in a little bit of a different place, right? I'm wanting to reduce the stress at least on a dog who is struggling in in other domains. And it doesn't have to leave the house if leaving the house would be problematic or difficult. Staying in the house, what you can do while you're in the house or in safe yards and sniff spots and things like that, what you can do in, in safety is teach look and dismiss teach them to follow their train of thought or their eyes or their nose in the middle of play and watch their patterns and see when they can return to you. And if they can't, if every time they look, just listen to a leaf fall outside your yard, it disturbs their play and then they cannot return to play with you because now they're just rocked and it's too hard. You've got very good information that I don't see any reason you should be working with working on their relationship to dogs. They can't handle the stressors of change in mild levels in your house or in their safe places. Teaching them how to be in a longer state of comfort, in a longer state of safety and relaxing, has to be chemically fundamentally helpful in whatever way a stress researcher can tell us is fundamentally helpful to to be less distressed just chronically. It's just, it's got to be a no-brainer that that's correct to say, right? And 
as we're emptying their cup, we can then start to see that other variables are possible when you're outside just because they're not bringing with them a whole week's worth of fever pitch high. They, they've had a lot of relaxation that week. And that can come from exercise and that can come from many things. And play is one of those things. And laughter is one of those things. I want your dog goofing around and being silly and snorting and laughing and lolling to get them to kind of counteract what maybe the rest of their therapies and their coping and their management life is like. Um, and then from there, you've cracked open a door. So maybe um, you can find other places that are simple. You can use it. it. I don't intend it to be like, well, we played inside. Now let's put that dog across the field and get play going. Let's get therapy happening because it, it just isn't how it happens. And it's intended that way so that I can break it from that system, let you use the other tools that do fit in that system for those things and use play for what it is what I'm finding it's much better for. Because you can't demand play, you can't time it to anything in the environment. You can't make play happen. It grows up. It, it comes out of your dynamic. You can't trigger it to happen. So you can't apply it to those sort of things. So think of it as a bit of a side project if you have a whole bunch of stuff going on as a way to build your sensitivity, human, your secret language with your dog, as a way to have a stress relief for both of you. And then maybe you'll start seeing like earlier recoveries after big blowups outside. The dog might just shake it off and move on because it's not landing. Your dog wasn't at, you know, 72% and that went to 100. Your dog was at 34%. So it only went up to, well, I picked crazy numbers there, but <laughs> it went up a bit and it can go down a bit better now right, if you have an emptier cup. So so think of it as a, you know, a side thing and not an only therapy and fold it into what you're doing. I, I love how you frame all that because it really does fill a lot of empty spaces and really what should be a robust toolbox for yes. us when we're helping our dogs with aggression, reactivity, fear issues, all those things. So I really appreciate this conversation because it's a necessary one because, again, as we were talking about throughout the show, it's it's just not talked about enough, all of these aspects and the benefits of it. So, it's uh, yeah, it's wonderful. It's not, wonderful. And, and just as a small aside, we kind of put the ideas of talking about relationship away because it was such a focus mm -hmm. of earlier styles of training. Training was through your right. relationship. And so we're like, well, right. I don't need a relationship to train a, 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 you know, in Sea Life Park. I don't need a relationship with the animal. I need to be clear and to be a good teacher. And that is absolutely true. But there's a way for us in this style of training to bring in aspects of relationship that still stay safely codified, still stay safely unguessed about because I'm just asking for play. I'm not deciding you're in a state right now. So it's it's something we can explore without feeling like we're going into this nebulous, can't really prove it, can't talk about it place. I, I it It still pleases my clicker training and positive training mind because it's quantifiable. And it pleases my mind as well when I think <laughs> about fun. all the things you're saying too, you know? It, it, it's, yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, why we should be- Why did you get a should, dog? Yeah, why did we why get, did a, dog? get a dog? So thank you so much, Amy. Where can people find you and what are you up to next? This was the best. I want to do this every day. We have a standing date now. Um, you can find me at the Fancy Dog Sports Academy. That's where I teach my classes on this. I teach three main classes. One is the Signature Playway class. It's called Dealing with the Boogeyman. And it's running right now. It runs uh, every other term there. So April, August, I want to say December. <laughs> Gosh. Um, and then I alternate that with my active management class. It's a companion class because I feel like 
sure, you can play in your house and you can do all these stress relieving things, but you still have to potty your dog and you still have to get from A to B and you still have to go places. And I think people need a very cohesive, very scripted kind of system that can let them do that. So I teach that separately so that people aren't just in their house. And I teach a, also a sound sensitivity protocol there too as well, which is different than I think the, the typical. So I teach those three at the Fancy Dog Sports Academy. That's where everybody can reach me and I'm on every social you can find. I'm on all of them. <laughs> I'm on everything. <laughs> and I will vouch that Amy's got some really wonderful social media accounts and uh, <laughs> I will link to all of those in the show notes as well as uh, Amy did do a webinar for me as well on the Playway. So uh, I, I will did. Uh, add and that I, to I, the show notes as well. So I broke down uh, individual pieces of vocabulary in, in that webinar for you. So yes, it's like how to yeah. do the greeting, how to do the invitation, how to get the style going. If you're listening to this and you're still like, yeah, but I can't picture play, that's the webinar to go by. It's it's yes. always on sale. So go see that one. Um, yes. And then, you know, go to my website, get on a mailing list so that you know what I'm up to next. And, and that's how to keep keep getting the good information. Excellent. And your website again is? Playwaydogs.com. And I'm Playway Dogs uh, as well on, on Instagram, but I'm also Dog Geek. And that's that's where I do all the fun geeky stuff, Dog <laughs> Geek. And Amy Cook, PhD on TikTok. And, you know, if, if you just want to see a little bit more about it without having to delve too far, um, there's always links in all those bios when you go to those places. But the one thing people should go to is the Whole Dog Journal article. They sent a, re a reporter, they um, interviewed me extensively and wrote a six-page article complete with a wonderful illustration from our lovely Lily Chin, who you'll recognize if you don't know by, by her name, you'll see it and go, oh, yes, her. And it's a, a full description, six pages long of all of this stuff we talked about with some visuals so that, you know, if you just want to peruse from here, that's that's free. Google my name and whole dog journal and you'll and you'll find it. Dr. Amy Cook, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and I hope to talk to you again in the future. This was the best. Invite me back for sure. Please. Amy is always so much fun to chat with, and I learn so much every time I talk with her. I'd love to hear what you think about using play with dogs who struggle in certain environments, as well as additional topics you'd like to hear more about in future episodes of both The Bitey End of the Dog and the newly announced Help for Dogs with Aggression subscription series. You can reach out by emailing podcast at aggressivedog.com. That's podcast at aggressivedog.com. I'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out aggressivedog.com for more information about helping dogs with aggression, from the Aggression in Dogs Master Course to webinars from world-renowned experts and even an annual conference. We have options for both pet pros and pet owners to learn more about aggression in dogs. I have bitey hands, I'm gonna get you. Hey, I'm gonna get you, get you. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get you. Thanks for joining me for the bitey end of the dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the looseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.